Welcome to the CRE Shark Eye Show, where we discuss commercial real estate. This is your host, Ishai Breslauer. Here we meet every Monday to talk commercial real estate and prop tech. We will dive deep into the different asset classes, discuss the market, talk about the new and exciting technologies, meet key people in the industry, and get some inspiration. Let's begin. Hey guys, before we start, I just want to point out the six best secrets for commercial real estate. It's a free download. Go to the text side and you will find it. It has absolutely great information, completely free, how to become a landlord, how to determine the value of a property, or creative financing for commercial real estate. All of it is completely free. Go download it. Also, I want to point out my CRE crash course. It's a two-week must-have program with a must-have skills for commercial real estate, like investment strategies, the must-have financial terms, how a deal is done. Go take a look at it. Go to the text side and click on the link. And now let's continue with our program. Hey, guys. How are you? This is Ishai Breslauer, your host of the CRE Shark Eye Show. Hope you guys are doing well today. You want to take your pen today and start writing the second our guest is going to start opening his mouth because he has vast experience in his field and did a lot of stuff in it. His name is Steve Davis, and he is the CEO of Safe Harbor Asset Management. He's an investment advisor for many, many, many years. Steve, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. So you know what? Before we start digging into your story, which is fascinating, I can tell that you are very young. I know you're 25 years old. Yeah, but, right. <laughs> uh, but, and therefore, uh, obviously, uh, for those who are listening to the medium, to the podcast medium, obviously, I was joking. Stephen has a lot of experience, he's been there, and he can teach us a lot. Um, you know what? Before we dig into your story, give us, you know, a two minute elevator pitch of what your business is all about today. Okay. So I work as an advisor primarily to high and ultra high net worth families. My firm acts as a virtual family office. We provide numerous services, not bill paying and not registering vacations and getting cruise ship reservations, not, not that kind of stuff. We handle the um, arrangement of investments for the family. And that would encompass, you know, market, market-based investments, stocks and bonds, but typically in a managed portfolio, we limit ourselves to ETFs and a small group of uh, real estate securities. I've been doing that for 30 years. We're one of the few investment advisors that actually has a audited historical rate of return. Our, our rate of return that you could see on our web, website, which is investsafeharbor.com, is now about 20 years audited. So our asset, our, our rate of return in the portfolios is pretty close to the S&P 500 over that period of time with 50% downside capture, which means relatively half the risk of the S&P. That is the fundamental basis of our business. It's not a shoot for the lights kind of management. It's safe money. But on top of that, my experience and my expertise as an advisor revolves around, I, I should not say tax avoidance. I keep getting counsel to say tax mitigation, 
but call it whatever you want, a tax dollar not paid is a substantial addition to your total rate of return. And we focus primarily on real estate because New York is chock full of investors who own real estate that has appreciated dramatically over the years and they are now faced with capital gains taxes that are in many cases astounding to the people when they decide to sell. I'll elaborate more as we go on, but that's the fundamental premise of our approach. It's tax savings on highly appreciated property. It sounds uh, not only exciting, but it sounds like we have a lot to learn today. Um, Steve, you know what? Going back all these years, and uh, right before the show, we started talking about you just throwing at me the 80s. And what I want to hear from you, if you can, how did you start? How did it all start? How did you choose your career path? How did you get into this whole thing? How did you become successful in your business? Okay, well, that's a longer story than we have time to tell, but I'll tell you the basics. <laughs> when I was I had to pay for school, and the way I paid for it was as a clam digger on the south shore of Long Island, which was um, probably the number one area for hard shell clams in the country. So I became a clam digger through a friend because I could make a lot more money digging clams than I could working at a job. And, you know, a clam digger has to have equipment, has to have motors and boats and clam rakes and all that paraphernalia. But the interesting thing, the, the point of that is, I learned as a self-employed businessman, the value of depreciation. I could go buy a brand new mercury outboard and I could write that off against my taxable income. And clam digging is a cash business, by the way. So you bring your clams to market, you get paid cash. But being the honest guy, I would declare my income, but I would take all those write-offs. So that stuck with me as uh, time went by, left the clamming industry. Uh, I did it for, I was uh, 23, uh, 23 to about 27. Um, you know, it was, I dug clams, but we also, basically anything we could get out of the bay that people could eat is what we went for. In the fall, we did scallops. In the summer, we did clams. Even in the winter, we did eels. Long, long, long story. A lot of stories associated with that. Clam diggers on Long Island are like the true rednecks of Long Island. So interesting life. And it was actually, it was actually very, I should say, it was a wonderful way to make a living, you know, in the early days, you know, being out on the water full time in a boat, making a living. It was pretty good. For a 23-year-old guy, it sounds like heaven. When you're young, yeah, but you don't want to be old doing that. So, exactly, exactly. Uh, but there are a lot of there are a lot of old guys doing it. Or they used to be uh, on the South Shore. They would have tong boats and they would tong. They do it in the Chesapeake Bay. You know, people have seen pictures of that stuff. But anyway, I don't want to get too hung up on that story. When I I left clam digging and I I chose financial services. But just really by accident, I got recruited by Metropolitan Life and failed miserably. But I had the license, and so I got recruited by another firm that worked with educators. And they, they would, an educator had the ability to shelter additional income through what was called a tax-deferred annuity. Um, so 501c3 organizations, schools, et cetera, hospitals. 
nurses, doctors, teachers, they could shelter money. We all heard of TIA, CREF. CREF was a big player in that. And so you would go in, you would meet a teacher, and you would show them how they could put $100 a week away or more, and it would reduce their taxable income. And that's where I learned more about tax, you know, deferring income, you know, for tax purposes. So IRAs came about, 401ks came about, but the premise is the same. Put money away for a rainy day in a tax-deferred account. And then it grows tax-deferred, except when you pull it out, you got to pay taxes. So um, that's how I got started in the business. Um, but I eventually gravitated toward real estate, and I started to learn about a um, concept called depreciation in real estate. And it was familiar to me because I use it in business. And a real estate investor, as we all know, can buy a property and he could take depreciation. Today, the depreciation schedule for, for commercial properties is 39 years, it used to be 29. So you would buy a property, you would uh, put some money down, you would get a loan. And oftentimes your depreciation and your interest was greater than the actual cash flow from the property. And you would then take those write-offs against your other ordinary income, assuming you had some. Well, that developed into a very big business. There were institutional players that started buying commercial properties and, and creating um, private placements. Either There were probably limited partnerships at the time, and they structured them the same way to create write-offs. And being in the business as long as I am, those write-offs were back in the mid 80s. It was before, probably started around 82. I got involved in the mid 80s. And for a few years there, I spent my time talking to high salaried people in, in New York City and showing them how they could shelter taxable income into real estate. However, in 19, in 1986, the tax law changed and I was I was just young and new. The tax law changed, eliminating the ability to use excess tax losses against your ordinary income. So, so investors had all these tax shelters that they could no longer use the tax write-offs for. So subsequently, the industry responded by creating uh, partnerships that created passive income. The... Um, Tax law allowed you to take passive losses against passive income. And passive income comes in a variety of ways, comes from real estate, comes from royalties. So anyone who had royalty income could use passive losses against their passive income. So they used to be called pigs and pals, passive income generator and a passive loss generator. So the pal was the, was the offset to the pig. So the pig the passive income generator, you could then use those losses. So it was a way, so the industry responded with, and they took a, they took a negative and turned it into a positive. So we continued on using the, the strategy to offset taxable income with, with um, tax losses, be it depreciation. And, um, and sometimes we had accelerated depreciation from equipment. Anyway, that was the 80s and early 90s. So um, to make a longer story short, 
Uh, we did that for a few years, but then after the stock market crash, which by the way, was a direct result of the tax law change. Are you talking about 2001 or 2008? This was just the, the, the stock market crashed first in 1987. Right. And it was right after they changed, they took away passive losses. When they took away passive losses, the real estate market crashed. And then right after that, the stock market crashed. And most of the politicians that are running, that are in, in politics today don't know that. And when they were trying to eliminate 1031 exchanges this past year, we were trying to explain to them that if you take away 1031 exchanges, the real estate market's going to crash and so is the stock market because it's predictable. If you take away 1031 exchange, no one's going to start selling their real estate and paying those humongous taxes. Exactly. So um, thankfully, they woke up. They didn't change it, um, you know, but in their continual search for revenue streams to cover their, their negative deficits, there's always a possibility it'll come up again. But right now we still have it. Long story short, again, we continued on um, through that period of time. But then if anybody old enough recalls, you know, real estate languished in the 90s. Uh, we started to get into the 2000s, 2001 through 2002. It started to pick up, percolate a little bit. Um, property started to grow. People started to sell, take their gains. We, then we started doing 1031 exchanges, this time using um, a product that was called a tick, a tenant in common. And in that case, a real estate company would put together, they would buy a property and they would create a tenant in common structure. And then investors would take pieces of that and they would then do a 1031 exchange into that new property, like kind exchange, and they would defer, roll forward their gain. So that started to pick up all until 2007 when the stock market crashed, you know, brought on by the bubble, the, the technology bubble. So again, the real estate market kind of took a back seat, waited around. It started to pick up again in 2010. And so from 2010 to today, the, the real estate market has been on a, a tear the whole time. Steady increases. Even you know before COVID and before the recent increase, it was pretty predictable. People would be able to sell their properties that they've been holding onto for many years and uh, take a large capital gain. Um, being in New York, we have federal tax, we have state tax, we have city tax, and we have healthcare tax. We used to call it the Obama tax. When you add up all those taxes, you could reach 40% on a capital gain. So I'll give you an example. Someone would have a property that they purchased for $150,000 in Brooklyn. We would call them taxpayers, you know, like they had anywhere between five and 10 apartments above and a couple of stores below. So the, the guy was a dry cleaner and he bought the store and the whole building and he had rental apartments above. Now he is now ready to sell. He's 80, 85 years old. He's done. He goes to sell his building. He's going to get $10 million for his building. <laughs> That's a company. He only paid, paid $150,000. And so when someone tells him, you know, you're going to pay, you know, $4 million. million? Yeah, $4 million. Yeah. He says, I'm not going to pay $4 million in taxes. Um, I'm going to do a 1031 exchange. 
So that's that's the business that has been going on in New York, in Brooklyn and Queens and in the city, and in some cases, all obviously around the country. But you know, being in New York, um, there are I I don't know how many thousands upon thousands of these properties exist, and this has been a steady increase in sales of properties of this nature. There's big ones, of course, there's big ones, you know, we get them 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 million on occasion. But generally speaking, I, I see these properties are between five and 10 million and they paid next to nothing and they're facing with these taxes. So I get referred by, you know, professionals, real estate professionals, attorneys, uh, CPAs and and what we call intermediaries. When you do a 1031 exchange, most people are familiar with this. You have to use an, some people call them accommodators, but they're intermediaries, and they have to handle the tra- transaction. The money has to go to them. It's arm's length. You cannot touch your money to do a 1031 exchange. And of course, you're familiar with the 45 day rule. You have to identify a property within 45 yes. days. Um, and I oftentimes I'm getting referred to people who have closed. It's one or two weeks past their closing date and they're panicking. They can't find a property because the properties they're looking at are also expensive. And so they, they don't want to make a lateral move just selling something to, do, to buy something at an exorbitant price. So we put them into institutional programs. We call them Delaware Statutory Trusts. Um, and we facilitate their exchange and uh, they don't pay the tax. And that's, that's the process that I am involved in. I have a, you know, we have a big staff here and we handle all the details. And um, we're one of the most prolific, I think, in the US. And uh, there are, you know, we're, I'm talking about, uh, we're a small shop, you know, we're not like 20, 20 people out there running around doing business. It's, it's, I'm the primary generator of the business and then I have a staff that does the fulfillment. So that's that's what we do. Sounds uh, so interesting. And what I want to ask you is, you know, when you got into this, obviously we understood how you got into this. But right now, today, things are shifting in such a crazy way. And people are coming to you and they ask you for advice. I would say, you know, a typical high net worth individual, obviously, has different assets, and it's not only real estate. And across the board, you have to come and tell them, um, here is how we are going to save on taxes. When it comes to 1031 exchange, it's pretty obvious how, meaning how it's done. We obviously need a professional and intermediary, someone to handle this whole uh, process. When it comes to a person who actually has a property or has other assets, and he needs to just pay taxes, annual income, and he has capital gains, because he sold other types you know, of assets, not only real estate. How do we manage all those in order to save on taxes and not to pay as much legally? All right, well, that, that, is, a, that, that is a multi-part question. So I'll- That's, I know. I'll take, I'll, let's break it down, let's uh, break it, let's break it. Let's break it down. So. A 1031 exchange is relevant only to investment property, property that produces rental income, typically. I mean, it could be land. 
it doesn't have to be a, an apartment building, but generally it, it has to be investment related. Can't be your primary house, can't be a vacation home. Um, so that's where we use 1031 exchange, but it is, is very common that someone will have a residential property, the, the home they live in, kids are gone. Um, and I have this, a number of times it's come to me where I have uh, an elderly widow, for example, who can't really afford the property she's been living in. It's typically a condo in New York City. It could be a co-op too, but, you know, they bought it. They've been living there for 50 years. They bought it for nothing, the same thing. Now they're getting $4 million for a condo they paid $45,000 for. And the woman is 80 years old. I'm using this generically, but I could tell you that I've had this a hundred times. She's 80 years old and she can't afford the upkeep for the maintenance for the condo and or co-op. And so they need to sell, but the family, the children realize that the tax, the, the tax that she's gonna pay is, is enormous. So the, the smart thing to do is not sell and hold on till the, till the lady passes away. Um, because then you get a stepped up cost basis and then all capital gains go away. But that's oftentimes difficult because as we age, we need services and sometimes we have to go into a nursing home or something like that. So, you know, it becomes a real problem. So one of the things we do for the owner is we help them set up a charitable remainder trust. And um, the UJA, for example, does this a, a lot. You can donate your property to the trust, and then the trust oh, will pay by, you. By the way, for those who don't, don't know, United Jewish Appeal. Right. Yeah. So they will give Sorry, you an annuity. It's called the remainder interest. They'll give you an annuity for the rest of your life. But you don't have to put the whole property into the trust to uh, eliminate the taxes. Really, between 40 and 50% of the deed goes into the trust. And then the property is sold. And the, the portion that went in pays no taxes. And it gives you a tax deduction that can often offset the tax on the, on the, on the portion that you kept. And of course, you also have a $500,000 or $250,000 or $500,000 deduction off the um, primary residence. So there is a way to create a, a zero tax sale in a residential property using that. But it can also be you know, not desirable for some families with children that they need to leave every dime they have to the child. So that's always a discussion. But that is a sophisticated technique that is used by the wealthy every day. So we use it for the wealthy and the not so wealthy. So that answers your question on, you know, how, how do you advise someone who doesn't have a 1031 exchange but has highly appreciated property? And that works if they're selling real estate, if they're selling art, if they're selling um, equipment. There's all kinds of things that people have gains in that you can use a charitable trust. It's the stock. You could, take a, you could take appreciated stock and put part of it into the charitable trust and, and, and you'll accomplish the same thing. So it is a very ubiquitous technique to use for offsetting capital gains. So that, that's, that's A of that question. B is the 1031 exchange for commercial property. C is how do you offset taxable income on ordinary 
income that you might have from investments. I'll just call it uh, portfolio income. Um, that is that is difficult. The hardest person to help is the executive making five hundred thousand dollars a year and has no write-offs. It's, you can't really help that person. Mark. I work with well because it's all ordinary income, salary. He's got. He usually has a four hundred one k that he can contribute to. We're talking about employees. Yes, they have a four hundred one k. Some companies at the upper level will offer deferred compensation, but we're not really talking about the, you know, the CEOs and the senior members of the corporation. We're talking about the rank and file executive. Can't really do too much for them. Where, where we work is primarily in the business owner community. A person who owns real estate, he's a business owner. He's investing in real estate. If he has a company and you could drive around Brooklyn and you'll see thousands of buildings owned, HVAC companies, distributor companies, of all, they're all over the place. They own that little building and they own a business. So now they're going to sell. So here's how we handle that. And we can do it zero tax. We take the building. Sometimes it's part of the sale, but we separate it from the business and we do a 1031 exchange with the building. On the business, we'll take some of the stock of the business and we'll put some of it into a charitable remainder trust, which the donation into the trust is not taxable. And it generates income from the trust between five and 12%. You have to make a choice. But the tax write-off from the donation of part of the stock of the business will offset the taxes on the other portion that you kept. So you keep the you, let's just keep it simple. You have a business that's worth uh, $5 million. You put $2.5 million into a charitable trust, and that'll generate enough tax shelter to cover the taxes on the other $2.5 million that is fully taxable. So we can actually create a, a net zero tax environment on the sale of a business and, and on real estate. Those are sophisticated advanced planning techniques that we use on the sale. Now, what if a guy's not selling? Well, then we look at a few other strategies. We look at um, a, a cash balance uh, defined benefit pension plan. They can shelter a lot. An older business owner can put away quite a lot of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars. But, but you also have to contribute for your other employees. So that is a problem if they have many, many employees. So oftentimes that is used for small business owner making a lot of money and he only has a few employees. Um, for the bigger business, we can look at captive insurance companies where we can uh, shelter money that they ordinarily would pay into other insurance companies and build up uh, value in their own insurance company. Uh, it's, I, I can't get into too much of the details because it right. is a little complex, um, but it, it works for, like, let's take a construction company that has liability. They call that a tail risk. So if you're building and you and you rent it out or you sell the building or you're just a developer, there's all kinds of scenarios there. If you have a tail risk on real estate are you, and if an air conditioner falls out of a window or a brick falls off the, the ceiling and kills somebody, you've got a huge liability. So they have liability. They can insure that liability in their own insurance company. And, and even though it's a remote, remote possibility, 
those premiums that they pay are tax deductible and the day will come when they will cash out of that insurance company and take that money and it's a capital gain. So that is, a, that is another strategy. And then for the ultra high net worth, we will take um, anywhere between 10 and $100 million and put it into a private placement life insurance policy. It's not traditional life insurance. It's used to shelter all the activity in the investment portfolio. The life insurance is legitimate. You have to qualify for it, but it's wholesale life insurance. And the emphasis is on the development and buildup of the value inside the insurance policy. There's no taxes on it. And when you take the money out, you can borrow it out. You can borrow against it or take withdrawals up to your cost basis. Those are the primary methods that we use to shelter and, and uh, defer, and in some cases, uh, eliminate taxes. And you know what? It, it, just proved, it just proved to us that always uh, it's worth to be very wealthy, not only because you got more money, but uh, because you have more methods to come around and save on taxes, basically, and know and have, I would say, more sophisticated ways to work around the system in a very legal and, and a straightforward way. But you have to have someone like you who knows what he's doing. Um, and that leads me to basically... Uh, before before I go to the next question, um, I wanted to like take a parenthesis sort of uh, and talk about. You said that those, I would say, high salary individuals, half a million, million, etc. You said you can you can't do much for them. Why is it? Because when they get the pay stub, they get already cut off so much and it goes to 401k and it goes to whatever and all that stuff. Or because when it comes in, they don't usually go and invest it forward. Why did you say that? Well, let me reflect back on what we talked about early on when I talked about when we did uh, tax shelters and, and the salaried employee would buy a tax shelter and use those losses against ordinary income. That, that went away in 1986, the tax law changed. Those were called passive losses against ordinary income. You cannot do that today. You can't use passive losses. So there, there are no real techniques to offset ordinary earned income legally. If you, if you receive it, it's taxable. I got um, so that's why in, in, the, in our country, it's, it's unbalanced. The tax, the, the tax benefits benefit the self-employed people. And the biggest beneficiary of all is our former president. He was open and admitting how he sheltered himself from taxes by using legal tax methods to offset his taxable income. Now, I'm not, I'm not raising whether what he did was legal or not, but the point is the method is legitimate. And that method allows the business owner to offset his taxable income with all these things I just described, you know, ways to offset both business and investment income. Okay, that answers. 
I want to shift gears a little bit. And what I want to ask you is about you obviously service a lot of high net worth individuals, ultra high net worth individuals, uh, but it requires obviously to get to them, to market to them, to sell them your services. How did you get to them in the first place? Today, obviously, it's, uh, you know, uh, one guy tells another, one lady tells her friend, uh, here's our advisor. But in the very beginning, I'm assuming it wasn't that easy. How did you do that? Perseverance, really. My lecturing, I think, opened up the door to numerous individuals. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, I lectured to a Douglas Elliman office in 2000, right around 2010. That's 12 years ago. On Thursday or Friday, one of the ladies in that office called me up, didn't actually speak to me, spoke to one of my staff, and telling us that she has a property she's selling for a million dollars, doesn't want to pay the tax. And so she asked me to call her, and I spoke to her over the weekend. That person had my, she was on, she's been on my, you know, on our uh, monthly uh, email ever, ever since. And so we keep in touch. So that happens, but most of it comes from what we call centers of influence. A center of influence is someone who I have a close relationship with who considers us to be a reputable uh, source for assisting in these complex transactions. And they are typically legal or accounting professionals. But I also work with um, professionals who advise business owners. This is becoming more ubiquitous too because um, we're starting to see a lot of transitions in business. Most businesses don't transition to the children, they get sold. Um, and they have this problem, as I described earlier. So I, there are advisors out there that work in the business owner community. Uh, they're sort of like investment bankers, but uh, uh, someone selling a 15, 20, 25, $30 million business, they need tax advice. They don't want to pay you know, capital gains taxes because it's seriously erodes their net rate of return after the sale. Of course, in that level, it's already very, very painful. Very painful. But, uh, you know, you spoke about lecturing. And uh, obviously, we could hear that you were a speaker. In the very beginning, where were you lecturing that got you exposure to those individuals? Well, I went to where the money was. And the money was in New York City uh, for real estate people. I started lecturing to residential and, in some cases, commercial real estate brokers. Marketed to them, sent them periodically information. Today, we have very sophisticated thought leadership material that we, we email. It's like magazine formats for articles that, that can make them aware of some of these complex uh, situations. But, you know, marketing has become sophisticated. And even today, our website generates activity too. So the bulk of the major activity comes from my centers of influence. I got it. And those, I'm assuming those brokers became your alliance, your ambassadors to go and tell their clients, hey, I have someone to help you on this transaction and to get it forward. Right? Yeah. Um, 
what we're still, what I see often is a real estate sale. Um, a broker is involved in, he has a buyer for someone who has a property. And the seller won't sell because he doesn't want to pay the capital gains tax unless he has a solution. So we provide that solution. And so I have brokers who have brought us clients who the broker won't get paid unless the client has a solution in the 1031 exchange or, you know, a tax avoidance scenario, tax mitigation. Um, so we help them. And not oftentimes, it doesn't always result in a sale for us, but it does result in a sale for the broker if we can help them. And when I lectured, and I think this is really, if your audience are professionals in, um, in the real estate industry and the sales side, uh, in my lectures, I started to talk about um, real estate professionals becoming advisors, not salespeople. And in order to advise their clients effectively, they have to learn and understand um, what goes on behind the scenes. It's not just, here's a great property and we can get you a mortgage. It's, how is that sale? What are you going to do with the money when you sell that property? Are you aware of your taxes? Do you have children? Are you benefacting the children? Are you charitably inclined? What's your family situation like? You have to understand what goes on behind the scenes and integrate yourself with their advisors in order to help them. And this is how I would explain, you know, to the, when we did our lectures, that as real estate professionals, I don't like to call them brokers. I like to call them what they should be, which is professional real estate people. And the ones that have years and years of experience in the industry, they, they totally raise their hands and they say they totally agree you know, and over the years, I started to see a change in the real estate business. I started to see so many young people in the offices. Initially, I went in, it was a lot of elderly people, not, well, not elderly, but older people in the business, you know, right. been around a long time. But then I started to see the transition, particularly on the, on the lower, lower east side, lower west side, lower west side, you know, Tribeca. The offices were all pretty hip young people. And... They, they were eager for information. They weren't, they weren't jaded, you know, so they, were, they would soak it up. And, um, and I, I advised them on how to approach it. When I gave my lectures, I didn't want to just teach them about 1031 Exchange. I wanted to teach them about how to use knowledge to help them help their client. And I get, I get calls and questions, and I answer their questions, and they help their client. Sometimes it works out for us, too. But helping them actually is a very enjoyable thing to do, to teach them on how to become more uh, of a professional rather than just a salesperson. Tell me something. I want to talk about something else completely. Um, you saw so many different environments. Could you compare, you know, from your perspective, from your activity, from your business perspective, um, all the crashes, because you've seen many of those, and all those shifts in the markets where there's 87, 2001, uh, uh, not meaning 2000, um, and then 2008. What did you see in terms of the tax environment for those, you know, type of assets, high net worth individuals? Was there a change? Was there a shift in terms of the volume of activities? 
that you felt or change in other forms, like, for example, COVID today? Um, I'm not sure if this answers the question the way you're, you would like me to, but I view those market declines uh, as opportunities. You don't get many opportunities to make money in the market. And the market um, today is dominated by huge institutions that are chasing 3,000 stocks. There used to be like 7,500 stocks to, to choose from. Today, there's only a little over 3,000. I'm not sure the exact number. So many companies went private. So the stock market is not a place to gamble. When you have, and I don't use individual stocks, we use, we use index-oriented ETFs. Um, so I'm not sure this answers your question, but every time those events occurred, it created an opportunity. If you were fully invested when they occurred and you're going to see a decline, um, it might not be an opportunity if you don't have any what, what I might call dry powder. What is dry powder? It's cash. If you don't have any cash in your account, you can't buy into something that declines. So um, sensibly, a diversified portfolio gives you an element of safety, but you should always have that dry powder so that when the market decline does come, you can average into those decliners um, at a lower price. It's always, this is simply stated, buy low and sell high. Don't get caught up in, in fads find good assets. I mean, I'm quoting Warren Buffett, really, but you buy good assets and you hold on to them, whether you buy individual companies or you buy index funds. Um, I use index funds primarily because they don't pay out capital gains. You can, you can control your tax liability when you manage money with ETFs, index-oriented index ETFs. Um, you can't, you, you're going to get dividends, of course, but you can control your capital gains better than you can with mutual funds. So it's all about not having to pay taxes when you don't want to, and then having money available so that you could buy into the markets. Like today, you know, I've been, I've been waiting. I knew it was going to happen. Russia was going to do what they're doing. And so the market's off. Is it off enough to buy in? Pretty close. There are some, some, some of the assets in our portfolio that, you know, take a 2 3 4%, 5% hit. So it's a good time to buy in. We were lucky last uh, March, March 20, we were holding a lot of cash. And when the market went down, we jumped right in and bought those assets. So you, you can't predict it. You can't time it. You right. just have to be ready. So whether it's real estate, like real estate is not crashing. The market will go up and down, but we, we have different dynamics today than we had 10, 15 years ago. Um, we know that the office market is suffering. The small office market, whether it's a skyscraper filled with small offices that is 50% occupied, um, that, that is the, the asset class in real estate today that nobody wants. Yes, offices. So the, the asset everybody wants is portfolios of Walgreens and CVS and supermarkets and you know, corporate credit quality tenants. They, that's what they want. But now they're overbought. You're not going to make any money in those asset classes. You're going to get predictable cash flow. Right. It's, but it's, you're not going to get in the upside. Right. So it, 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 it's, things change. It's cyclical. You just have to be aware 
um, of what that, you know, what's changing and where you should go with your money. Tell me something, Uh, Steve, where are you guys based? Uh, How much staff you have? Where are your offices? Uh, my, my office is in Huntington, Long Island on the North Shore. I have uh, four staff in office and we have two associates out of office. And we also have a um, relationship with two CPA offices and two, and two or three um, you know, law, legal offices that, that we work closely with. This is more on the, on, you know, the sophisticated strategies that we use you know, with, with clients, we have, we have legal representation to help clients whose own CPAs or attorneys are not up to snuff with some of the techniques. We help them out. Steve, I'll tell you something. One thing I know is that we learned tons today and we heard tons today that uh, there's much to know, much to learn. And I uh, obviously proved that uh, not only that you need that knowledge, but you have definitely that edge and that advantage. So it was uh, an honor and a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'll tell you, um, of course, I gave you my website. but Yeah, tell us how to find you. And you guys can see the links all the way up there or down there. It doesn't matter. Steve, tell us, please, how do they find you? Um, You could uh, email me at steve at investsafeharbor.com. And um, I always try to answer your questions as best I can, you know, and help you out in any way. So, would, you know, would LinkedIn, if, if people uh, send you a message on LinkedIn, would that be uh, efficient? Yeah, I, I'm also obviously on LinkedIn as well. well that's great. And, um, you know, we're pretty accessible. And, uh, you know, call us with your questions. If I can help you in a transaction, reach out. Sounds great. Guys, I hope you guys learned tons today. Uh, Steve, thank you very much. And My pleasure. Guys, for sure. And you guys, I'm going to see you in the next show. Hey, guys, thanks for joining me in this CRE Shark Eye show. I hope you enjoyed it. And go subscribe, download, do whatever you guys need to do. And I'll see you in the next episode. Take care of yourselves.